It's Thursday, July 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta publicly defended his role in overseeing the prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein for sex crimes committed in Florida almost a decade ago. Democrats have been calling for his resignation for accepting what was called a sweetheart deal that let Epstein off with very little consequences. Acosta said that his office stepped in to make sure he served jail time when going to trial was a roll of the dice. Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios, joins us for details. Next, an Asian couple from Queens gave birth to twins through in vitro fertilization, but a huge shock came when they were delivered. The babies were not theirs, and they were not of Asian descent, and the twins weren't even related. A Los Angeles fertility clinic screwed the whole thing up, and now two lawsuits have been filed over the whole ordeal. My producer Miranda joins us for this IVF mix-up. Finally, Virgin Orbit just dropped a rocket over California in a crucial test flight. For the last five years, Virgin Orbit has been developing a rocket called Launcher One that is designed to put satellites the size of washing machines into low orbits around the Earth. Lauren Grush, science reporter at The Verge, joins us for what you need to know about private companies getting increasingly involved in getting payloads into space. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Epstein got an ultimatum. Plead guilty to a charge that would require jail time and registration, or face federal charges. And that was the week more than 10 years ago that Epstein went to jail. Joining us now is Ursula Pirano, news desk reporter at Axios. The Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta on Wednesday publicly defended his role in overseeing the prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein for sex crimes committed in Florida. This was over a decade ago. He's been receiving a lot of flack from Democrats, especially calling for his resignation. Everybody's saying, you know, Epstein got a sweetheart deal at the time that really didn't give him much jail time, even though some of the accusations against him were were pretty horrible. So what happened at the press conference yesterday? Acosta got up and he addressed his role in facilitating that deal. And the way he framed it is that The deal he offered Epstein back in 2008 was actually a sort of godsend that the state's attorney's office of Palm Beach County in Florida that was looking into the case was about to let him go off virtually untouched without any jail time and not enough penalties. And so Acosta and his team were stepping in to do what they thought was right for the victims. And he framed it as that they were all just doing their best, trying to help bring justice to these women. He characterized going to trial at the time that it might have been a roll of the dice. Why was he saying that? It seemed the way he was saying it is that the the evidence just didn't line up, that it wasn't there, that he wasn't going to have the right kind of case. And so that he didn't want to go through the trial process, which can be so complex when you're facing sex crimes and sex charges, especially dealing with children, these young girls. So he basically said that the goal was straightforward. They wanted to put Epstein behind bars ensure he was a registered sex offender and provide victims the means to seek restitution and then obviously let the public know that there was a sexual predator in their midst. But even that deal, I mean, we keep going back to it, was not very forceful at all. He was involved in some type of work release program. He was able to leave six days a week, 12 hours at a time. That's not very much at all. Oh, it's not. By any measure, it's a sweetheart deal. People get worse for marijuana charges. I mean, for the gravity of what happened in this situation, he was let off so unscathed. But it'll be really interesting seeing it play out now in a post-Me Too era where those sort of things, these things that used to protect 
especially wealthy and powerful men, as Epstein inevitably was and still is, don't really play out the same way anymore. There's this increased focus on accountability and making sure that women are given a chance at justice and heard in a way that they haven't been before. In February, a judge had ruled that federal prosecutors overseeing the Epstein case including Mr. Acosta, violated the law by concealing the specifics of the deal, by concealing them from underage victims and really not telling them what was going on. How did Alexander Acosta respond to that part of it? He dodged the question. Caitlin Collins from CNN asked him, if you could go back, would you do the same deal? Would you do this over? And he walks around it. He says that it's hard to really think of it that way because we look at things so differently now and just don't have the same perspective. But he was very vague in that response. It's unclear as to if he firmly can say if he would do it again or if he would have penalized Epstein more harshly. A wide range of Democrats have been calling for his resignation on this. Republicans have been kind of having this wait and see approach to it. They wanted to wait for him to speak out on it. He was even asked the question how his relationship was with the president. He said that our relationship is outstanding and that he thinks he has the president's support. How do you think this is going to play out in the future? He was already on thin ice in the White House because he's been falling behind on deregulation as labor secretary, which is a huge priority for the Trump administration. But my colleagues, Jonathan Swan and Elena Treen, are reporting this afternoon that a source close to Trump is saying that there is zero chance he fires Acosta. So in the conference, even Acosta himself walked around the issue. He said that if Trump were to decide he's not the best person for the position, he would respect that, but that he expressed a lot of confidence in his relationship with Trump and the idea that he's going to be sticking around. There was even another accusation from uh, another woman. Her name was Jennifer Arroz, who said that Epstein raped her when she was 15. This was back in the day again. So this case will continue. That new accusation that's coming forward really will add a fresh face, a new face to this ongoing saga and it renews fears of how many other women might be out there and and how much else might have happened that we don't yet understand about these Epstein files. And her testimony on NBC was obviously heart-wrenching. The self-blame she faced for years really just is a testimony itself to the gravity of the case and how important it is that it's taken seriously. And it was very much in line with reports of how Epstein was operating. She was recruited herself by someone else. It started off with massages and then and she alleged that he raped her at another time. We'll continue to follow this story. Ursula Pirano, news desk reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good one. Every day, I'm still, I just feel like life will never be the same again. Never. I was robbed from all my experiences that I could have had with him. If they hadn't messed up. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. Crazy story to tell today. This is about a Queens couple that tried for years to get pregnant and they suffered the mother of all mix-ups. Once they finally succeeded, they were doing this in vitro fertilization procedure with a Los Angeles fertility clinic and things just went haywire in this. This couple, they're an Asian husband and wife. They're identified in court papers only as YZ and AP. 
They turned to a fertility center called CHA. They were able to get inseminated and they had two twin babies carried to term. But later on, they found out they weren't theirs. And even those two babies inside weren't related to each other. What do we know about this, Miranda? Well, we know that this couple from Flushing, New York, made the trip out to California in January of 2018 to meet with the doctors in charge of the CHA fertility clinic here in Los Angeles. And they underwent months of medicines and vitamins and testings and procedures and they were able to get eight embryos. In all, Oscar, they spent $100,000. And so in July of 2018, they came to LA and they were trying to have an implantation. The implants didn't take. So a month later, they came back. This one was successful. By September, the mom, AP, was pregnant. In that second one, they thawed two of the couple's female embryos for an attempt. And that's important because when they finally gave birth, they were not female embryos. They ended up being two boys. And they knew something was wrong pretty quickly during an ultrasound. The sonogram showed that the fetuses inside of AP were male. And so the doctors reassured her saying, you know, my wife had a sonogram that said she was having a boy. And when the baby came out, it was a girl. This happens all the time. It's it's not a definitive test. So the parents were assured. And ultimately, March 30th, 2019, they went to a hospital in New York. It was go time. She had the babies via a cesarean section and both of the babies came out as boys and neither of the babies came out as Korean. So now they're suing the fertility clinic. I mean, it's a huge, huge mix up. But the other part of this is that there's other couples involved in this. On that day when they went to get implanted, there was two other couples on that same day in August when they were trying to have these embryos transferred. And this is the other part of the story. Now, there's a California couple who was also clients of the Chaw Fertility Center who are also filing suit now saying that our embryos were implanted in that woman from New York. And they went through this whole legal battle just to get their son at that point. After the New York couple had their two baby boys, I don't even want to call them twins because they're not related in any way. The doctors of the Chaw facility flew to New York took DNA testing of both the parents, definitively decided these are not your kids and called in the other families that had been in the clinic that same day as the implantation. They called Annie and Ashot Manukin of Glendale, California. This is how they called them in. It was a Thursday. I remember I got a phone call from a woman I had never heard of. She said for me and my husband to go to Cha and do a, a cheek swab. So we went and they did the cheek swab and we asked the nurse and said, what is this for? She said, oh, this is a routine procedure we do once a year. The Manukins didn't even know that they'd had a son until after he was born to right. a complete stranger. And that's what that cheek swab was all about. It's a false pretense to get them in there to do a DNA test to see who do these babies even belong to? They had to go through a custody battle because the... Asian couple, they wanted to keep the babies. I yeah. mean, she carried them to term. They wanted to keep them, but the, they belonged uh, to someone, but they belonged to someone else. Exactly. The Manukins weren't able to win custody of their child until he was already six weeks oh, old. My God. And this is how she reacted when she realized I missed out on all of this time with my son. All of a sudden, my brain went to I didn't get to bond with my baby. You know, I wasn't able to carry him. I wasn't able to hold him. I wasn't able to feel him inside of me. I wasn't I wasn't there when he was born. You know, those first moments of life is the most like precious out that's how the baby bonds with the mom, you know. I wasn't able to breastfeed him. I wasn't able to do anything. I mean it's so sad. There was a press conference that they had and the father is standing next to Annie right there and 
his eyes are so bloodshot red. Yeah. I mean, you can just see the stress on their faces. There's this third family who remains anonymous where the other boy came from. All three of those couples were in that clinic on that same day. And I mean, it just begs the question, were these embryos mislabeled mm -hmm. or when they pulled them out to try to transfer them into the women? Uh, did they just bungle everything up and, you know, juggle them around and, and, where, and misplace them? where are those two female embryos for the Korean family? Where are they? Because Ani, the mother in Los Angeles, she was implanted with an embryo that didn't take. It actually ended up causing really, really serious health complications for her. So was she? implanted with one of their female embryos. Those are precious. You can't just yeah. create those. They have to be cultivated. The family called them irreplaceable. And of course, it's true. You know, it's just a complicated issue. The fertility center has been very quiet on all this stuff. I'm sure, sure they're working with the authorities to find out what's going on. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. You see small satellites that are being used for observation and surveillance. You see things gathering radar data, just taking pictures. There's lots of different ways that you can use these satellites. Joining us now is Lauren Grush, science reporter at The Verge. There was a rather unusual plane flying around over Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California yesterday. It was a modified Boeing 747 jumbo jet. It had a single word on it, just said Virgin, and a 70-foot rocket was strapped beneath its left wing. It was a test flight and test drop that they were doing, uh, this rocket they called a Launcher 1. Tell us about this flight. Tell us what Launcher 1 is and what this overall plan for Virgin Orbit is. I love this flight because they were dropping a rocket from 35,000 feet on purpose, but this was a very big test for the company. They are developing a system called Air Launch, which basically uses a rocket that is carried to a height underneath the wing of an airplane. It's then deployed, ignites its engine, and then puts payloads into orbit from there. But they haven't launched anything yet, but before they do that, they did this drop test, which was just they took the airplane up with the rocket underneath its wing and they dropped it just to see if it behaved like they expected, if it fell the way they expected, if the forces that they simulated were the same in the air. And from what they've said, it sounds like it was a success. And so that kind of paves the way for the next step. Yeah, it's really interesting. This air launch method is just another way to get things into space, as you mentioned, but it uses considerably less fuel since you're using a plane to kind of get you halfway there, basically. And then the rocket drops, ignites, and makes its way to space versus, you know, a traditional rocket launching straight from the floor. It uses the majority of its fuel up front trying to fight gravity and even get into the air. So they're estimating that this could really be a, a big cost-saving measure for them. I think they said once this is all said and done and they're in the swing of things, it could cost $12 million to launch something into space which is kind of pocket change in the space industry. It's still kind of a, a bit of money just because the kinds of payloads that they're targeting aren't the big payloads like SpaceX is launching or the Blue Origin launch the launcher that ULA is launching. These are specifically geared towards small satellites about the size of washing machines. So it might be a little pricier for, for those companies, but I think Virgin Orbit is being very diligent about their testing program and making sure that they have a very reliable system. So I think when you're paying that couple million, yeah, it's not a lot, you know, it's not a lot compared to say 
if your satellite was, you know, sort of the size of a bus, but you're also paying for that kind of reliability that I think Virgin Orbit is, is striving for. Private companies have been getting more and more involved in space travel, getting things into low orbit, as you mentioned, these satellites. What are these satellites going to be used for? Who's the customer base for this? The small satellite revolution has really kind of allowed a lot of new players to come into the aerospace industry. And it depends, you know, the miniaturization of electronics and and instruments really can apply to a lot of different things. So you see small satellites that are being used for observation and surveillance. You see things gathering radar data, just taking pictures. There's lots of different ways that you can use these satellites. And the fact that they are becoming smaller makes them cheaper to build and less time-consuming to build to so you can get them up much more quickly. And so that allows a lot of different companies, universities for research to put all sorts of kinds of satellites in space. I forgot to mention the name of the plane. It's got a great name, Cosmic Girl. It's this yeah. modified 747. And so it carries the launcher one a rocket up there. And as we said, takes off from there to get into space. Virgin Orbit, they spun that off from Virgin Galactic, which these are all owned by Richard Branson. They've already inked deals worth $400 million with organizations like OneWeb, NASA, and the U.S. Air Force, obviously to send some of these smaller payloads up there. I think they're... Launcher One rocket is limited to payloads weighing about 660 pounds or less. So like you said, these washing machine sized satellites. What's the next step for them? Because this was the the last big test before they do the first official test where they're actually going to send the rocket into low orbit. Right. Yeah. What Dan Hart was telling me, the CEO of Virgin Orbit, is that this really capped off their development phase of Launcher One. And now it's really getting to that first test launch where they will put some kind of unknown payload. They haven't said what it'll be yet, but it will be some kind of dummy payload that they'll put in Launcher One. They'll do everything that they did on Wednesday, but instead of just dropping the rocket, they will ignite the engine for the first time once it's fallen from the wing of the airplane, and then it will climb to orbit and hopefully put whatever that payload is into orbit. And so that's going to be very exciting. I believe they're targeting the end of summer for that, and then Once that's done, about two and a half months later, they'll hopefully start commercial operations where they start putting their customers' satellites into orbit. Man, and that is a quick turnaround. So by the end of the year, this business, this new business venture right here, Virgin Orbit, could already be up and running. This is the brainchild of Richard Branson, who is among others like Elon Musk, you know, people wanting to make space travel and and getting into space, getting things up there just more accessible to everybody. As I said at the beginning, you know, private companies are getting more and more involved in this. What's the landscape going to look like once this stuff starts getting going? I think that's a big question right now, because there are so many players, at least new players in this field of small rocket launchers, where they're geared specifically towards launching small satellites and not the big bus size satellites like SpaceX and Blue Origin and ULA. And there's some concern that things are going to kind of shake out after a while because there might be more launch providers than there is demand for putting things into space. So I think we might see a weeding out of all of these hundreds of players that are trying to come into this field. 
As of now, though, it's very early. I believe the only commercially operated one right now is Rocket Lab out of New Zealand. They're the ones that are actually flying payloads with regularity. And now it looks like Virgin Orbit might be coming up next. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see which ones stick around for the long haul and which ones maybe their business model didn't work out and they don't corner shares of the market like they want to. Lauren Grush, science reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.